Hey everybody and welcome to a new episode of The Walk. I'm Father Roderick and I'm walking to Wageningen to get a haircut. It's long overdue. Uh, I wanted to do that two weeks ago and then uh, for multiple reasons I just didn't get around uh, getting a haircut and then <laughs> this morning I was like, come on, I really need to do something now. I feel relatively good this morning which hasn't always been the case previous days still uh, struggling with fatigue and so I decided to combine um, the what is it the necessary with the useful <laughs> I think that's a Dutch uh, expression and not an English one um, and uh, record an episode of the walk while I walk to Wageningen uh, for my haircut um, since last time we talked, as I already mentioned, I've been dealing with, uh, with more fatigue. This is one of the reasons that I went to see my physician um, not so long ago. Uh, we did the blood tests and everything is healthy, basically. Everything is fine. Um, so her conclusion was, you're still probably doing too much. And uh, fatigue is usually a combination of multiple factors we always tend to think in like one cause one solution and she said it's very likely that in your case there are multiple factors that are causing this uh, it could be long COVID, and actually i wouldn't be surprised if that is part of it because fatigue is a very common um, symptom of people that uh, have long long COVID. Uh, uh, consequences. Uh, let's see, am I going to the left or to the right? I think I can turn right here. Uh, and then, although, oh no, 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 that's, that's the, that's where the cars are. I don't want to walk alongside the road, especially because it's been raining. It is actually raining as I record this. And so the, the cars make a, a lot of noise. And the, the, I don't know, I just don't like the sound of cars <laughs> when it's raining um, so I'm gonna take a bit of a detour uh, through the more rural part of of the area here doesn't matter I have to uh, I have to walk anyway to uh, compensate a little bit for the lack of of training and running in the past few days so um, long COVID probably one of the causes another cause may still be trying to do too much, <laughs> having uh, too many projects, too many goals. So we had a little discussion about that. Um, and I told her that every morning I write down um, my, well, what I call my, my, my frogs, you know, the, the things that are urgent and important and that I want to deal with first thing in the morning. And usually I have trouble picking one. The, the, the idea of the the frog method is uh, that there is this one big thing that you want to do today, the most important one. doesn't necessarily always have to be a big thing. Um, and, and, and that's going to be your main focus. If you finish that, if you accomplish... Um, and, and the idea is you eat the frog, which is not pleasant, but once you've eaten it, you can move on. <laughs> it's a wild metaphor. Um, but then I have the tendency to write down several to, or to, to, to put several frogs in my notebook. 
um, usually at four or five goals. And then I go to my calendar and I jot them down, I give them a time slot, and almost without exception, I realize that I'm uh, unable to get to even the halfway point with those frogs. And so I move the rest of the frogs to the next day. And then the cycle continues because then I feel like, well, well that's yesterday's work. I should do at least one new thing. And then uh, I, keep, I keep piling on the, the stuff. And so um, she recommended me to pick, to really try to pick one goal and then I can write down other things that I want to do or try to accomplish. But it's, it's secondary goals and it's not that big of a deal if you can't do it. And she said, that's going to be very hard for you. <laughs> because that's just not how you've been managing your energy um, for most of your life. So try it. To take some, some time in the next couple of weeks. Limit yourself to one important goal focus on that and if you have more energy if you have more time you of course you can do some other stuff but uh, but don't give everything equal urgency <laughs> and importance because that's gonna uh, not only um, make you tired physically but also mentally you will have that stress of not being able to meet your goals every subsequent day so definitely uh, good advice uh, it's stuff that I actually already know but it's sometimes comforting to hear it from your own physician who um, adds some weight to that I've, I've, I mean, I've, I've read a ton of books on uh, time management and um, how our brains and bodies function um, but that's all self-study and sometimes you just need like a someone opposite of you telling you hey I confirm this, <laughs> do this, see what happens. And then uh, a third factor in this is um, very likely also all the processing that I've been doing, all the, the mental work, which is actually work, um, because of all the changes in the past year and a half or two years almost. Uh, the move from one parish to another, the circumstances, circumstances under which weren't very peaceful, <laughs> to put it mildly. It was very disruptive, very challenging. Um, not having a place to stay for more than half a year. Well, I did have a place to stay, but it was, uh, I was a guest in Father Henry's rectory. Um, and uh, I had to wait for more than half a year for the for my, my new home to be ready. Um, and then also a lot of uh, family-related issues. Um, and, and, and that's also causing a lot of stress. You, I'm at an age where you kind of look back at your life and you start to really see the connections. Like how are certain struggles in my life related to my upbringing, to um, trauma that I've had and so uh, trying to to think about that and, and of course also how am I going to relate to that how can I uh, improve the situation um, because a lot of the things that I struggle with um, in terms of and it's exactly it's exactly 
related to what I just mentioned, like always trying to do so much and wanting to somehow prove myself, <laughs> always struggling with that, I know, intellectually ridiculous idea that uh, I'm only worth something if I prove it every single day with everything I do and produce. <laughs> Whereas I always tell other people, it's not about what you do, it's who you are and it, you're good enough no matter what you do or how much you do. Um, but I don't practice what I preach and that is related to these very old mechanisms that I expanded upon in previous episodes of The Walk. And so that process too, that mental process, is, is exhausting. It is work. And it takes some time to acknowledge that um, working on yourself is also work. And there's even this kind of latent... Um, is that a word? It's, it's this kind of subtle feeling of guilt that if you're working on yourself, that is selfish, you know? <laughs> you're supposed to be always looking at other people and ask yourself how you can help them. Oh, wow, there's a lot of wind here. There's a tractor here on the left. And just waving at the guy, he's taking a break. Actually, very small tractor. Uh, ooh, it's cold and windy. <laughs> and my hands are getting cold as well. Uh, and as a, as a seminarian, we were often um, uh, given the Virgin Mary as an example. Uh, of, of virtue, obviously, and also a model for um, for your for your mindset, for your mentality. And it was always uh, came down to the fact that the Virgin Mary is always turned towards God and towards her Son. is super altruistic, uh, and and so is her Son, and so is everybody in the <laughs> who is holy in the in the Bible and uh, in history. Uh, the, the model that we're presented with is you, you shouldn't be uh, worried about yourself or occupied with yourself. You should um, sacrifice yourself for, for others. And that's, that's a major theme in the way that I was brought up, um, where everything, every time you spend a little bit of time for yourself and um, I, I, I like to be alone in my room and uh, be creative. I was always drawing something or building model kits or uh, working on a, my, my, my train set. Um, I was writing. I loved to write stories. And, and, and very often um, I would be encouraged and sometimes pushed to stop doing that and to socialize. Uh, quote unquote, and to be social and not, and it was labeled. So the time that I took for myself was labeled as uh, selfish. <laughs> and so if you've if if you've been brought up with that mindset, um, it's uh, it's really tough to admit that <laughs> working on yourself sometimes is necessary, and and is also a prerequisite for being able to be there for others. Um, I, I, I sometimes have discussions with Father Henry about uh, our homilies because uh, when I can celebrate with him and he preaches uh, he asks for my feedback so I give him my feedback and uh, since we know each other so well we can be brutally honest 
and, and so, um, and, and, and vice versa, he also listens to my homilies. Um, and one of the big differences that we've discovered is that uh, I like to start my homily with an anecdote, uh, a story, something I remember from a, a journey, a trip, an encounter, even a movie that I've seen or a book that I've read. Um, whereas Father Henry usually starts right away with the gospel and commentary on the Bible readings and then starts to apply that. And uh, so I, I told him, he, he never um, had criticism on that because he likes to listen to the stories. Most people do. Uh, but uh, he said, I cannot do that. I don't like to. Uh, share anecdotes of my personal life. I don't want to talk about my feelings because it's not supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be about Jesus. <laughs> it's supposed to be about my parishioners, which is a very laudable um, attitude, of course. Uh, but I've often told him that uh, it's when you when you tell a story about your own life, or even if you just relate your own trouble with sometimes we have that when you read um, a, one of those bible readings and you're like well sure i don't know what to do with this or i don't even like this <laughs> this this thing that jesus does or says and i don't know if i how i feel about that and just having these doubts it i think that that oftentimes we think that that is not allowed uh, we should be uh, uh, the the teachers the guides uh, but I said that, that when I share my my own struggles, my, my also my discoveries, positive, negative, it makes me relatable, and I do that not because of me, because I don't, I want people to uh, be occupied with how I live my life, but because hopefully it helps them relate, because they see that I am also uh, sure I'm a priest, I'm a preacher, I'm a guide but I'm also a follower. I'm also someone who struggles. I'm, I look at the apostles. None of them is perfect. None of them starts out as a saint. They all have their flaws. They, they have petty rows amongst each other about who is the most important. They are sometimes just plain dumb. <laughs> it's like, Jesus is like, how, but how, how often have I told you this and you still don't get it seriously? Have you even been paying attention? <laughs> so, what I like about that is that our, our Bible stories, the, the, the testimony that is given by the apostles is given by flawed people that have also had their struggles, their doubts, their, their failures, their betrayals even. So if the apostles, the founders of our church, the, the, the pillars of, a, of, of this 2,000-year-old adventure... Um, can be that human, then why, why would we hesitate to show our humanity, and including our flaws? Uh, but then, I always think afterwards, after having a discussion like that, um, well, maybe he has a point. Maybe I am talking a bit too much about myself. And uh, uh, when I, I've been recording this particular series, The Walk, um, for... Huh, I don't know, 10 years, maybe even longer. It hasn't always been called the walk. Uh, I think earlier on it was uh, healthy Catholic. <laughs> uh, 
and um, maybe health and holiness, I think that was another title. But the, the concept has always been the same and the gist or the, the kind of the main, the core content is uh, I share my life with you so it helps you in your walk. Or I share my walk of life hopefully, so hopefully that will help you to reflect upon your own walk in life and, and the things that I struggle with and the things that I discover may help you to reflect upon your own struggles and your own discoveries. So when I started to share even, even more personal details about my health or struggles that I had with my, the you know, church authority or, or my doubts or anger, even frustration about uh, the, the life of the church and in, in very specific encounters and dilemmas and whatnot, uh, I sometimes got the feedback from my mother mostly, like, you shouldn't talk about that. Uh, sometimes it, there would be even be reactions on Facebook, like, you're, you're sharing, you're oversharing. Um, nobody needs to know this, and you make yourself extremely vulnerable. And I always push back on that, and I still push back on it, because, sure, I, it's absolutely true that I share a lot about my personal life. Um, and it makes me vulnerable, uh, because I'm also just figuring it out. I'm also just winging it very often in my in the way I communicate. But there is also a certain... It's part of my journey, is when I share, I often start to understand myself. It's when you have a good conversation with a friend, and you have that back and forth, and you're like, oh my gosh, the other day I had this and that. What do you think? And that person tells you, well, you want to have an honest answer or just a kind answer? <laughs> like a polite answer. No, a friend, you want your friend to tell you a, a, a real honest answer. Even if, if uh, you get some, uh, some criticism or some, some correction even. Uh, but having that conversation... Even if you may express yourself clumsily and you may have to admit that you messed up, uh, it still gives clarity. It helps you to discern. And um, I've often the impression that if I talk about myself, um, yes, that this kind of inner voice tells me you shouldn't. It's selfish to talk about yourself. You should always think about uh, the people that you're talking to and how can you help them and it shouldn't be about you almost got run over by this bike <laughs> that snuck up on me this is we're approaching university campus and there are lots of uh, students on bikes uh, because we're in the Netherlands <laughs> but uh, since I have my head my earbuds in I don't always hear them uh, approaching let alone these um, electrical bikes. They're super silent. They're spy bikes. Um, and when I'm in the middle of a story, I usually don't pay that much attention to the world around me. Anyway, uh, it's... Uh, yes, it, 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 I make myself vulnerable, but I hope it helps other people. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought <laughs> because of that bike. And also because I'm approaching like a, there's a, 
a roundabout here and I need to decide whether I go straight on or I go to the left. Uh, I think I'm going to cross this road and I'm going to go straight on because if I turn left it's going to be a busy road. It's like the main traffic artery for to get to uh, Wageningen. Instead I'll just hop over to this small sidewalk. Sidewalks is a thing in this area. There are not that many of them and it's very uh, bike-centric which is a good thing but oftentimes I am on a bike right now I'm walking and I wish there was a little bit more space for the pedestrians um, so anyway all that after <laughs> this conversation that I had uh, with my doctor about uh, going through this process of, of recalibrating yourself who am I really uh, am, am I a product of my upbringing and then weighing what is the stuff that has brought me to where I am and what are things, what are mechanisms and behaviors that I want to let go of? And, uh, and also, how do you deal with your emotions about that? Because sometimes I, I, I can't be angry about stuff that I only now discover I'm 54 years old and I'm still dealing with stuff that happened to me as a child. And... Uh, uh, of course you can always take the high road and well it's brought me up and to, to where I am right now even the negative stuff has, has, uh, has its positive side sure but there's also um, there's also mourning involved in why, why, why was my life not different <laughs> how, how is it that I had to carry this, this, this burden for so long uh, why has nobody told me <laughs> that I could let go of that stuff? And then I, you start to project that also on the on other people that have formed you, and and you, um, I I struggle with disappointment and sometimes even anger about my man. They should have taught us that in seminary. Why? Why is is our formation to become a priest? Why is that so incredibly intellectual or intellectualistic? That's a pejorative term. It's, it's focused on just learning uh, about very abstract thinking often, philosophy, theology. Why is there so little uh, social and psychological formation? If we had had more courses in psychology and even just in general um, uh, human sciences... Um, I, I would have learned s such so so many important tools uh, for for uh, for myself to understand myself and also to help others. And it's now that I'm struggling uh, with a lot of issues that I only now start to understand where they come from. That I'm able to also uh, validate other people in, in their struggle um, because they're often in the same in the same boat. So. Uh, this, this, is, this is an interesting uh, thing that happened the other day. I was, uh, I was watching a live stream from, from the main church in, in, uh, in Wageningen. Wow, that, what a wind. <laughs> this is not, not a good time to be on a bike because you get these sweeping winds in between the buildings here. And... Uh, you have to hold on to your steering wheel. Uh, there was a 
uh, a, a student or a, a young woman who was consecrating her life at, in a, uh, how you say that, temporary profession uh, because she wanted to enter the congregation. I think it's a congregation of the, uh, we call them the Blue Sisters, but they are the, um, how are they called? The Sisters of the Virgin of Matara. And uh, anyway, it's this new, relatively young congregation that is uh, very popular, uh, growing very quickly all, or, all around the world. Um, it's, it's a very contemplative life. They have a both contemplative branch and a more <clears throat> uh, active branch. And this uh, young woman, I think she's like 19, 20, or is very young. Um, and the bishop, my bishop, came over to uh, be, I don't know, it's probably some kind of um, church representation. I don't know exactly how that works with the, with the, uh, the consecrated life. It, it felt a bit like an ordination. Uh, it's not, of course. It's a, these are vows. And I was watching that and I had, I have to say that I had conflicting feelings. On the one hand, it, it was beautiful. It was really uh, touching to see someone who is ready to give her life to the Lord and to the consecrated life. But at the same time, I was worried. I felt like, like oh, provided that that is, going to, that is really her vocation and that she will be in a good, in a good community. And, uh, and this is based on what I've seen happening over the, over the last decades where um, there's been so much... Uh, we, we've learned so much about what's going wrong in communities, both old, existing, sometimes centuries-old uh, congregations, monasteries, church structures, um, uh, abuse of power, um, uh, all sorts of, I don't know, things got, get, got unhinged. Uh, and of course, in the, in the, among the regular clergy and even among bishops, the, the, the abuse and the scandals. And, the, and now sometimes you, you read about embezzlement and there's this German bishop who got uh, demoted or or, well, you cannot sack a bishop. He's, he's been relieved of his duties because he had um, uh, taken like a ton of money, like, literally a ton of money from, uh, from a, an older lady that he was accompanying as a spiritual guide. And he just took her money. Uh, that sort of stuff. It's <laughs> and you don't want a young person to be in, in a situation where her spiritual well-being and her vocation might be in danger. And I have to say, I'm even more worried when it's a young congregation, when it's a relatively new movement, because we've seen time and again how often these very charismatic, vibrant communities have shown to have a darker side where because everybody only sees the kind of like the cheerful outside, it's positive, like young people, you see, uh, <laughs> uh, prayer is, go, never goes out of fashion. And, and then uh, 
these, these sisters are walking in their habit and uh, they give witness to the world. We, we sometimes overlook, and I'm not saying that this about this particular congregation, but in the past I have been sorely disappointed by these, these vibrant young communities. I've been, those have played a very important role in my own vocation. The charismatic renewal when I was like 18, 19, early years of my, of my seminary formation. The, the charismatic movement has uh, given me a ton of... I think it, 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 it helps me to understand that faith is not just an intellectual exercise, it's also uh, life, emotion, beauty, enthusiasm, energy, uh, all that, community. Uh, that, was, that was super... Uh, helpful and a good I would say uh, definitely um, a, a dimension that compensated for the lack thereof later on in my formation where it was so focused on the intellectual part of the formation and where uh, in the seminary itself you were uh, you received formation from people that ultimately also were brought up in a very intellectual climate far uh, far away from, let's say, day-to-day life. A lot of the people that were... And things have changed now, but in my time, a lot of the people that uh, uh, were part of the staff had never had a parish, or only very, very briefly. And this is also the case with some of the bishops. Uh, my own bishop has... I don't think he has ever had a parish, at least not as a, as a pastor. Um, uh, he's always been a teacher, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it is, it's risky when uh, you are, uh, you're, you're training priests to enter a world where that dimension, being able to empathize with people and, and, and know how to guide them, not just on a spiritual, theological, intellectual level, but also on a, just a day-to-day life. And how do, you, how do you manage relationships? What do you do when you, when you have uh, mental issues? Um, how can we help the marginalized people? There are no <laughs> intellectual solutions to the problems in the world that we are facing. Uh, not, not just intellectual solutions. If someone is hungry, you can talk about the social discourse of the Catholic Church, but that person just needs food, <laughs> right? And I want, and um, I'm on a tangent now. <laughs> I don't want to lose track of uh, what I was thinking of, but um, so the, the, having been part of, of those communities, well, not re- I wasn't part of a community, but I was going to these assemblies, these gatherings of the charismatic movement. Um, I was very inspired by a community in France uh, that was uh, publishing beautiful books uh, they had a magazine that I devoured every... It was a monthly magazine. It was full of beautiful photos and, um, and, and, and uh, spiritual um, articles. It was full color, which at the time was very expensive. Um, and I, I, was, I was just ravished. I mean, I had, uh, I've never been to their communities, but we had cassette tapes with their music, and it was so beautiful and like oh my gosh this is the summit of 
Catholic spirituality and oh my gosh, if only in another life I could have been part of a, a, a congregation like that. And then decades later, it all came tumbling down and it turned out that the leaders of that community were criminals. I have no other word for it. They were abusing their spiritual power to uh, get in bed with, uh, with younger women uh, who were dedicating themselves to Christ and they would come up with this, this horrible, abusive, manipulative uh, tactics of, of telling them that, uh, well, in order to surrender to Christ, you first have to surrender to me because I represent Christ. And it means like body and soul. Let's focus on the body. You know, that kind of very, very scary, almost diabolical abuse of people in a vulnerable position because they had power. They had God on their side and uh, they used it to, uh, for their own aberrations. I remember when that came out, when that got known in France, uh, I was devastated. I was, and then that wasn't the only movement where that happened. That I've seen it in other congregations as well. I've heard personal stories from a, a, a friend of mine who is a, a priest in the south of France, and he had um, been where he. I'm not sure if he still is, but he used to be a confessor in one of those mo- more stricter monasteries, and then. Uh, he, he witnessed basically a horrible abuse of power by the mother superior. And uh, just the, 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 the devastation that it caused, especially with the younger women that were under her power. And there was no supervision. There was no control because everybody only looked at the outside. Oh my gosh, this is such a beautiful contemplative monastery. And nobody, except for you know, the confessor who has, of course, the, the, the secret of confession. He cannot act upon what he hears. He cannot even share it. So, um, to me, he was only describing the kind of the public things uh, that had been said. But I felt that there was much more going on. Um, and it was, again, it was so devastating because you feel like, but who can you trust? If, if, if everyone... Um, that you look up uh, that you look up to in the church is not trustworthy. It turns out to be untrustworthy, and and is doing the opposite of what you have always believed should be what the church is doing. How do I relate to that as someone who works for this church in this, who is part of this church? Uh, and that's that's a struggle and. Um, so I was I was watching the uh, live stream, and I I felt that sentiment of almost of cynicism, and I I felt terrible about that. It's like what has happened to the church that I constantly feel bad about it, and I I cannot even fully rejoice in a, such an important step that someone is taking without. Uh, feeling that fear of, oh my gosh, I hope that, that everything is going to be okay. And that, uh. <laughs> and, and, and it, it brought me back to the very first conversation that I had with my parish priest. I was 17 years old. I was in secondary school. 
and I had had a number of confrontations with the other kids and even with the teachers in my school about the upcoming papal visit. Pope John Paul II would visit the Netherlands for the first time and uh, the, the whole public discourse was negative and uh, everybody, everybody was uh, condemning the church and especially the Pope, of course, he was kind of the, uh, <laughs> the target of, uh, um, of ridicule and criticism uh, and, and resistance also within the church. And uh, in the middle of that, <laughs> I discovered the, the charismatic side of the church, the spiritual side. There, um, the noise that you hear is from uh, workers here on my right, and they are repairing the road after they uh, put new cables in the ground for internet, I think. This is the last, must be the last part of the town that gets uh, fiber. So uh, in order to get that to all the houses here on both sides of the road, they had to open the entire street and uh, now they're fixing it again. <laughs> um, so I, I, I went to uh, youth uh, retreats. I learned how to pray. I read uh, about the history of the church and uh, started to understand the, uh, the liturgy much more. And I was mesmerized. I, I thought it was the best thing ever. And then during a trip to Lourdes, I received the vocation to become a priest. And I was so convinced that that was my vocation that, uh, of course, I wanted to speak with the priest, the parish priest, who had uh, been my guide as a, as a child, even, in the parish. He was the, the, the parish leader. He, he was... Uh, a good storyteller. He was great with kids, not so great with the, <laughs> with older people. They could be very, uh, um, how do you say that? Uh, he wasn't an easy guy to work with, uh, but he was. He, he loved telling stories to kids, and uh, was very kind to us. Um, and I looked up to him. I was like, wow, he's such a positive um, person in my life. I want to share this, this news that I think I need to become a priest with him first. And so we, we have an appointment, I have an appointment. And I remember it was after uh, evening mass at, at the parish. And I served mass because I was an altar boy as well. And we sit down uh, and, and he looks at me across the table and I tell him about what happened in Lourdes and that I wanted to become a priest and then he he doesn't smile, he doesn't nod, he doesn't say, well, good, I'm glad. No, he, the first thing he's, he says after, I, after I'm done sharing my vocation story, he says, I don't think you should do it. I don't know about this. I don't think, I don't think this is, this, you, uh, no, I cannot recommend you do this. And I was, what, what, seriously? I've got my parish priest to tell me. Hello. Good hoor. Ik ben aan het opnemen, ja. Ja, dankjewel. And so, uh, I, I was shocked. And then, and then he, he continues, I don't remember everything he said. But uh, he says, if I had to choose all over again, if I, if I had your age, I, I wouldn't do it. 
I really regret having become a priest. And I, I, I remember being so shocked. And I came home completely disillusioned and, and he was so cynical. And it was the total opposite of um, how I always, what I thought he, he was as a priest. And it was so, um, it, it, yeah, I, I was sad for him. And I've often told this in when I'm sharing my vocation story about this moment. That was, it was a big test for me. Um, that, well, well, apparently there are priests that even though I always thought they were happy, they're actually very unhappy. And they, 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 they don't like their work and they don't like being a priest. Wow, I, I didn't think that was possible. I just thought that, that yeah, most priests are just old and that's why they are tired and not that... They don't have that much energy and maybe not that many ideas, but come on, this, this priest was in his 50s, I think. Maybe a little bit older than I am right now, but not that old. And then I always, I always told myself, I never want to become like him. He turned around later on because it... Uh, but anyway, <laughs> there's a whole further story to that, but I will tell that another time. But I always remember that I, I never wanted to become that cynical and here I am, the other day, watching that uh, ceremony on the live stream, and I feel that cynicism awakening me. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? I've turned into my old parish priest. <laughs> I don't want to be this cynical. And, and that is always, for me, a moment where I have to uh, do some introspection. Hey, there's that tractor guy that was at the side of the road uh, half an hour ago. There we go. We've got green light so we can cross the road. <laughs> this guy is uh, walking his dog on his bike. Poor dog. <laughs> um, no, the dog wasn't on the bike. The guy was on the bike and the dog was on the leash. But then <laughs> the dog wanted to go one way and the bike rider wanted to go the other way. And there was a lantern post in between them. Not the safest thing to do here in a busy street. Anyway, uh... These moments where you feel this, 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 or you, you just, all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm cynical. This is not good. I should be happy. <laughs> Why am I so worried? Um, it's a good moment to ask myself, so what's, go what's truly going on here? And I think uh, this is a culmination of, of, uh, of a lot of things. <laughs> The, the part, partly what I mentioned uh, before in this, uh, in the, during this walk. I'm just gonna walk through the main street here. I'm almost there. Um, like being very disappointed in the way that I was treated uh, by, by, by the, the church people in the past two years. Um, this idea that you, you, yeah, basically. Uh, put put on the on the waist. Uh, anyway, I won't dwell on that. Uh, that's not necessary. Here is a first hairdresser, uh, but there is a client, so I'm just going to try out the other guy. Ooh, nice! They already have the end of the year uh, uh, pastry. It smells so good. They're selling this in an open market stall, and now I'm hungry. <laughs> um, the rain is also starting to pick up, so I'm glad I'm here. So, um, 
it's uh, and then uh, just recently the our bishops went to rome for their uh ad limina so to the graves of the apostles and then to have their conversation with the pope and there's been a lot of press coverage well actually there's been barely any press coverage in the national press but some of our uh christian uh based newspapers have been publishing about the ad limina uh uh proceedings there and also the uh, there were some interviews with the bishops and and I was again I was so disappointed and and there were so many people that were like well, well, these bishops have really no idea whatsoever what to do and it's all so 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 uh, like it's basically nothing has changed since the last time they were in the Vatican that's in 2013 like what why haven't they really uh inspired us and why are we in this this dire situation where the catholic church is 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 really being discarded uh and and has no relevancy for people um and you, i was like come on guys <laughs> do your job and it says i i noticed that since i've been kind of focusing and maybe also because your own like the when you're hurt uh you're much easier triggered by stuff that resembles um what you've gone through yourself and you tend to focus you know this from negative feedback as well uh you tend to dwell on that much more than you dwell on the positive and i think that that has affected my whole <laughs> my whole my whole outlook on the world and that is why i was so shocked the other day and I, I realized well wait a minute i always told myself i don't want to be cynical i also don't want to be naive and you have to always of course be be careful and there is there are good rational reasons that i'm worried about um uh younger congregations and movements because i've seen it over and over again uh that that charism and and beautiful songs and beautiful liturgy is not going to protect you from the attempts of the devil to uh to to derail you or to derail uh, your charism or your um the 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 fruits of your work um in fact a lot of charism can also uh make you maybe too um complacent when you have tons of vocations it's like but we're doing obviously we're doing the right thing right we're growing everybody loves us um you you tend to maybe be a, a bit less vigilant for um what could go wrong and and so i i still stand with that um let's say that that attitude of vigilance that well always always be watchful and how do you balance that with being also genuinely happy for young people that want to become a priest want to enter a monastery follow their vocation how can you get rid of that cynicism and also allow yourself to be truly genuinely happy and also ultimately of course how does that reflect on the way you look at yourself are you still a happy priest which i've always been but <laughs> doesn't always mean that my life has uh, doesn't mean that my life has always been happy <laughs> I am happy that I was called and I am called to be a priest. I love my work. I love 
my vocation. I love uh, my relationship with God. I love the liturgy. There's so much to love. But it's not easy because the church is also made of people and often, <laughs> I speak also for myself, flawed people, sometimes very flawed people. And it's, it's hard to juggle that and to balance that. And so when I, when I was 17 years old, I could not imagine that a priest who had such charism as my parish priest was so cynical. I think I understand a little bit better why he was so reluctant to support me in my vocation. Because he was in the midst of that. Those were the days of the high, the top polarization in the church. Um, there, there was a lot of fighting going on in the parishes between the uh, the people that would like to uh, to uphold the traditions and those that wanted to change everything and church should be self-expression and away, let's be gone with all those stupid traditions and all that fixed, rigid liturgy. And, and as a priest, he had to navigate between all these people and try to find his balance. So I'm, I'm much milder now in my assessment of how he reacted back then. And I think he was genuinely worried that I was just a child. I was 17 years old. And so he knew that a lot of the seminaries were part of that polarized world and uh, everything was in turmoil. He was genuinely worried. If this 17-year-old boy who he had seen grow up, I did my first communion in his parish. So, and I, for him, that's just a few years ago for me. It, felt like a lifetime I was an adult you know I was I was so convinced that I knew what I was doing but he looked at it from the perspective of uh, well let's say I don't know someone in his late 50s is like oh my gosh I just so hope that he's going to be safe and maybe I should not encourage him too much and um, uh, that, so I understand how difficult it is to navigate I don't have a quick solution to this. This is something I struggle with. Uh, that, like, how do I keep the balance between um, my love for the church and my very frequent utter disappointment in the church and its leaders and in the people that should be an example but aren't and are sometimes even a counterexample? Um, it's really, really difficult. And at the same time, I know that there is, <laughs> that it is super important to never lose hope and to be joyful. And joyful is not, I've always thought that joyful Im implied naivete. It implied a certain, implied a certain of like looking away from the problems. Because otherwise, how can you be positive how can you be happy how can you be joyful if you're focusing on the negative and i'm i'm thinking more and more that the lessons that i'm learning about looking at my own struggles and things that went wrong in my upbringing and in uh, uh, traumatic moments of my life uh the solution is never to run away from trauma uh from difficulties from from doubts from from your emotions. 
is not like, la, 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 it's not happening. I close my eyes, I close my ears, and let's pretend the world is a happy place. Escapism is very understandable. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it if it's part of a balanced life where you also face the difficulties of your day-to-day life and the reality of, of life. Uh, otherwise, you just live in a, in, in a matrix, you know, an imaginary world. But uh, we live in this world and we have to deal with it. And part of the balance can also be sometimes a bit of escapism and losing yourself in beautiful liturgy. I mean, the, the, the positive moments, the beautiful moments are there too. And uh, the most important uh, art, I think, cause, or well, no, it's not a craft. Craft means you make something. But it, let's say the art of living a, a balanced Christian life is about acknowledging the good and the bad without, um, maybe without judgment. And it, I'm not meaning assessment. When something is wrong, you need to, you need to see it and you need to act upon it. Uh, but a, way, a better word instead of judgment, is condemnation. Uh, never condemn people, even if they do bad things, uh, because there is always hope. There's always something you can learn. There's so, always uh, the possibility that, that God, with our help, <laughs> because he solicits our help, will act and will change things. Um, to the Holy Spirit, no situation is ever lost. And so the crisis in the church that is ongoing, and we, we will see more news in the future as well about people bearing counter-witness to Christ and to faith. Um, we, we, ha- we acknowledge it, but without, uh, without letting it take over the future, our personal future, how we feel, and also it should never rob us of hope because that's what the devil wants. <laughs> he knows that our, his greatest enemy, or the, the, our, our superpower and his kryptonite is hope. As long as we have hope, we can withstand any test of our faith. Uh, we can withstand any trauma because... There's always another day, and God is there in the future uh, with us. But if he robs us of our hope, if cynicism takes over, and cynicism is a, is a very poisonous, uh, poisonous, uh, poisonous poison. Gosh, I'm so incredibly um, literary <laughs> today. Uh, Cynicism is a poison that kills hope. And so the moment you, you, you realize that, uh, you have to ask yourself, so, okay, how can I tap into hope again? And I think there's the best way, the quickest way to do that is to go to the source of that hope. And that's Christ, who has died for us on the cross, who was rejected and betrayed by his own friends. And yet did vanquish death and rose again on the third day and said, if you trust me, if you hold on to me, if you have faith in me, you too will live, even if you sometimes have to die. 
All right. Uh, I hear it is time to uh, enter <laughs> the hairdresser. It's right here on the right. But I've been walking around. I don't even know if I can have an appointment. But I think, yeah, I don't think he has clients right now. So that, that would be great. All right. Thank you for the privilege of your time. And, um, and thank you for... Uh, uh, thank you for being there. And I hope this helped. Let me know. You know how to find me. We'll talk soon. God bless.